0: We'll turn back to the Gospel of Mark this morning, Mark chapter six. We have the first six verses here. Read through the first first half of verse six. Give careful attention now to God's holy, infallible word. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. I want to consider significantly this morning uh, a threat that's very real for many of us, if not all of us, and that is losing a sense of astonishment and wonder at Jesus, at who he really is, who he is for us. Uh, I like to, when I'm here studying, walk around the neighborhood um, occasionally and take a break and walk down the block, and at the end of this street here, um, there's... A great view of the mountains, great view of the, the Twin Peaks there and um, across beautiful farmland. There's a, a house um, at the end of the street there on the north side of the street here um, on the edge of a, a long, long open space down there and there's an there's amazing view from the house. And it's, the, the view is preserved by the open space there, um, but the house is facing south. And they have the garage on on the west side, and there 's not a single window on on the west side of the house and um, it kind of drives me nuts that this house didn't, in some way, uh, take advantage, even with a single window, um, of that view from from inside the house. Um, it could be in part just a diff- difference between me being new to living near the mountains and and the majesty of the mountains, and maybe the homeowner or the home builder um, grew up near the mountains, and it's something more of just a background um, that's that's hardly noticed. That's uh, to a large degree. I understandable that's that's how we function um, humanly we all get familiar with and take for granted things that we're used to uh, someone who's you know, lived on the ocean for 20 years doesn't see it or respond to it each day like someone who's visiting the beach for the first time um, perhaps so partly that's that's a natural thing but uh, if we're talking about the glory and the power and the grace and the beauty of God, that sort of familiarity that leads to uh, indifference or neglect is deadly serious. Um, it's a deadly thing. Many of us have been around Jesus, so to speak, for a long time. Right? We're very familiar
1: with um,
0: him, if you're like me, if you've never known a day when, when you haven't known who Jesus was and, and taught things about Him, that's a wonderful blessing. Right? That's a, that's a great blessing and grace of God, especially in, in covenant families. But there's also a danger in that to be aware of. and That is in becoming, in a sense, too familiar with Jesus to be in awe of Him, right? to be amazed by Him, to live in the fear of the Lord. And so, I want to consider this account here this morning as something of a warning of that that danger of uh, being overly familiar in that sense with Jesus to be uh, amazed uh, at him, uh, looking at number one on your outline there in your uh, in your bulletins. Um, Jesus has been in Capernaum. He's been ministering in his Capernaum, which is sort of his second home that he adopted for his ministry. But now we read in verse 1 here that he went out from there and came back to his hometown. And that's, of course, Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up and lived for most of his life. This is 25 miles southwest of Nazareth, so he probably walked a couple of days to get there. And he goes to the synagogue, it says, and begins to teach. And the listeners there uh, were astonished. We're, we're told in Luke chapter four uh, more that he has a much longer account of this of Jesus preaching in the synagogue here, and this is uh, it seems where Jesus took, takes the scroll of Isaiah uh, and opens and reads, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, uh, freedom to the captives, sight to the blind." And Jesus says, "In this day, this this day, this is fulfilling your hearing." He essentially says, "This is about." Me and again we read the peoples of their amazement. They're they're astonished. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? Such miracles. And we've read of people being amazed at Jesus before, but here this time it's not an amazement of of faith. That's that's often true, but it's it's not an amazement of, of fascination or interest. Uh, Verse 3 tells us the character of their amazement at the end of that verse. They took offense at him. They were offended. They were amazed in an offended way. They are put out. Uh, It's not a humble, reverent amazement. They're skeptical. It's it's even a hostile amazement. The the Greek word behind that is skandalizo. They're scandalized. And that word is used often in the Gospels, and it's always used in the sense of a stumbling block, something that's a barrier to people's faith and obedience to Jesus. And then for the first time in this passage, in, in contrast to other passages, we read also of Jesus' amazement at the people. In verse six, he wondered at their unbelief, and that's that's really probably too tame given our vocabularies. uh, Too tame a word, a translation there. It it means Jesus was shocked at their unbelief. We we might say, in our idiom, he could hardly believe it. These are the people that Jesus grew up with in Nazareth. These are his neighbors, his friends, probably relatives. So Jesus uses their reaction to state this this truism as well in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor. That's a double negative, so if you uh, work on your map there to figure that out, a prophet has honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. That statement's not original. It's Jesus. It was a common common truism in the ancient world. Um, it's not terribly different from our saying, "Familiarity breeds contempt." Right? Sometimes it's not a it's it's not like an absolute law. It's more like a proverb. This is something that can tends to happen in human relationships. And this is the, how Jesus describes the response of the people of Nazareth. Who, who is he to make these claims and demands on us, on us? Right? This is just our neighbor and brother, Jesus. And there can be a parallel in significant ways uh, in our experience. Right? In the church, in Christian families, uh, where Jesus is familiar, uh, appropriately, rightly familiar... He's part of our culture, his worship, his word, our our habits to us. Um, These are good things, but the challenge is this. Are you still enamored with, are you still amazed at his power, his grace, and his love toward you, as you should be? Or or maybe do you have some cold familiarity? Do you ever take offense when the claims or demands of discipleship uh, sort of shake up your, your comfort? your normal way of doing things. Uh, Many people are comfortable to have some kind of association with Jesus, some proximity to Jesus, if you will, but not to live a life of humble, reverent, amazed, grateful uh, service to him, response to King Jesus. Uh, Again, familiarity in one sense is very good and right. And necessary uh, with with Jesus, but without a living and true faith, it can breed unbelief It can sort of inoculate you against a real and living belief. It can become a familiar routine rather than a living faith. And when you sing praises to Jesus each lord 's day morning, how mindful are you of to whom you 're singing or what you 're singing? Um, No doubt Jesus grieves in amazement at at me at times when I'm um, singing of His glory and His grace with my mouth, but my mind is on emails I need to send or something I'm going to do later that day. Um, Do you know the difference between someone who's grown up with with the means of grace, or with uh, the, the catechisms, great summaries of, of God's truth uh, for us, but hears and reads it like you know a man's chief ends to glorify God joy and join forever. I heard that before. Right, my only comfort in life and death, I belong to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yada yada. Heard that a thousand times, right? Versus someone who has come to faith and is devouring and growing in God's truth is so grateful to know. My purpose in life, my chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But to know the comfort, I belong body and soul, forever to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, parents need to think seriously what kind of faith are you modeling Uh, are you passing on to your children Uh, that's a great challenge to me Kevin DeYoung comments on this passage there's almost nothing worse for our children than a perfunctory faith Aside from explicitly teaching your children lies, giving them an anti-Christian education, probably the worst thing you can do for your children is teach them the truth and don't care about it. Demonstrate that it doesn't shape your life, it doesn't shape your conversations. That's not to suggest that's the reason for uh, children Learning a perfunctory faith or leaving the faith, there can be many reasons for that, but it's maybe the most efficient way to push your children away from the faith. And That kind of faith can serve to inoculate others, our families, against a living and amazed and loving and responding faith to King Jesus. Uh, we need to strive to have to, to ask in prayer for that kind of ongoing amazed gratitude um, think of a time when, when something happens and you immediately think oh, I've got to I've gotta tell so and so about this or I can't wait until they hear about this or I need to get a picture of this and show my kids or show my wife right, that will be our attitude towards Jesus continuously if we really comprehend who he is um, that's so I read earlier from Ephesians 3. This is what Paul praised, essentially for the Ephesians that they would grasp how, how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. To know that love that surpasses knowledge. If like we have a living and growing faith, it's not something that we can become perfunctorily uh, familiar with that gets old. That like we reach the end of, of understanding and, and amazement at. And that's Paul's desire that he prays for. But another thing that's going on here with these people from Jesus' hometown. Secondly, on your outline there, I'm summarizing with the words they're they're disillusioned by the ordinary. It seems. Uh, verse three, they say, "Isn't isn't this the carpenter?" Referring to Jesus' uh, profession, uh, it, the word there either refers to working with wood or working with stone. Uh, could have been both, um, and it's not a. It wasn't a lowly, um, shameful job. This isn't an insult. Um, but the point is, he, he's not a scholar. Right? He didn't go off and train with some great rabbi to be making the claims that he is. Of course, Jesus was eminently qualified in his, his being a humble carpenter from Nazareth was part of his qualification as as, as God condescending. But the, the people of Nazareth are viewing this like the, the equivalent of someone posing as a doctor without an M.D. or a Ph.D. or even a bachelor's degree. And Who does he think he is? They, they name his family. Uh, in verse 3, the, the son of Mary, it's interesting that Joseph is not mentioned uh, almost universally. A man would be identified by his father, son of his father, sort of like our um, our surnames work. Um, it's possible that Joseph is, has passed away by this time, and that's the reason. Uh, it's also possible this is meant as sort of an insult, um, identifying him as the, the illegitimate, supposed illegitimate son of, of a Mary who somehow got pregnant before uh, she and Joseph were married. Um, they mention his brothers and his sisters. And the, the point is, he, he's, Jesus is just one of us, right? We know these people. These are just the ordinary people that we live with. Who does he think he is? How how pretentious to be preaching like this. This is just Jesus. We we tend to, in one sense, appropriately attach great significance to that name, Jesus. Uh, But it was not an extraordinary name in Jesus' time. It was was extraordinarily common. Um, It's it's guessed that it was probably top five in common names. It was Bob, Joe. This is just Bob. Bob. That we grew up with, right? He looked like everyone else, and then he's only from Nazareth, right? A, a small, insignificant town. It's interesting. Um, Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. There's not a single mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not mentioned once in, in all of Josephus' writings, ancient Jewish history. It's not mentioned good in rabbinic literature at all. Um, archaeology has has um, archaeologists have uncovered the city of Nazareth, the ancient city, and found just a tiny um, uh, little town on a rocky hillside. Um, not more than 60 acres, not more than 30 to 40 little two-room houses, um, and it's estimated it was never more than 500 people. Um, and you remember what Nathaniel's response was to um, someone excitedly telling him in, in John chapter 1, you've got to come and see Jesus of Nazareth. He said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Right, So, it wasn't a city you bragged of being from. It even seems to have had a low reputation. Um, it's not a city that great people making great claims come from. This is probably part of their offense. Right? Remember, uh, you may have followed the uh, Amazon's. Search for headquarters not not too long ago right they didn't have on their list uh, Meade, Colorado or corner of Kansas or you know and, and great uh, rich famous powerful people don't live in these places they're from Los Angeles and New York and Paris and Beijing right? if you imagine a trying god trying to decide where to bring up the King of Kings you know the most important and powerful Eternal uh, human ever in history, um, you know, how would Nazareth be in the running? How would it be on the list? And that's essentially what the people of Nazareth are. What's leading in part to their offense, I think. This just isn't how it works. But who does he think he is? And so, in other words, we could say it this way: the people of Nazareth are judging Jesus not on not in his terms, by who he is. <laughs> But by circumstances, by people who are associated with him, by the place he's from, the Pharisees judged Jesus by the people he associated with, tax collectors and others. Many people today do the same thing. They judge Jesus or judge Christianity, the worthwhileness of, of Jesus' church, even by, they judge that by the messy and flawed people that he calls his brothers and sisters. They point to all too ordinary sins and flaws of Christians and say, is this really worth it? Um, What's so special about the church? And then there is an important balance there, right? Jesus does call us to holiness. His people can bring dishonor to him, uh, living unfaithfully. But Christianity and and Christians not claim to be free of of deep flaws in this life. That's that's not the point. And so, part of the urging of this passage is: do not judge Jesus. Do not judge the goodness of His body of the church Uh, by the way people in the church disappoint you or uh, don't meet your expectations. Uh, Jesus does transform lives. There is to be a, a difference uh, in our in our lives, a holiness. He demands loyalty and new life and so on. But when you see the painfully ordinary and mundane nature of, of God's people or our congregation or your life, understand again that in large part this is exactly how God works.
1: I think back to the
0: parables of, of the seeds. That points to the way that, that God especially glorifies Himself in working through small beginnings and in invisible ways, in unexpected ways, ways that turn expectations upside down through weakness and poverty and suffering and disappointment. This is, these are the things that God glorifies Himself in working through. So is, is your faith... And is your amazement at Jesus proportional to the weak and flawed and disappointing people around you and circumstances in your life, or is it proportional to Jesus himself and who he is? Now, Jesus being raised in a, in a hick town in an ordinary family um, with an ordinary name was, was exactly and powerfully by design. Uh, pointing to his humility, pointing to God's stunning condescension to humanity through Jesus, his coming as a sacrifice for sin, it pointed appropriately to his call to others, to us, to humility and repentance. The fact is that's not that's simply not what we want. It's not the call we want in our sinful nature. Uh, one commentator, Edwards, uh, writes. That humanity often wants something other than what God gives. We could compare the people of the land of the Gerasenes, right? The demoniac and the pigs and all that. They concluded that it was in their best interest to drive Jesus away. They didn't want what he was offering, the cost of it. God calls you, and in part by his own example in Christ, in his ordinary humility... Uh, he calls you to the way of humility and a willing suffering and patience and repentance. And we simply don't want to go that way, right? It's hard and painful and long and unpopular. And the people of Nazareth, the Jews in general, were essentially waiting for a different kind of Messiah. They're saying, God, give us something great. Make us great. Don't call us to mundane service and ordinary things, We're looking for something better. And in in different ways, but in many parallel ways, our our culture, and even many churches, call us to shun, to escape what is ordinary. We look for something better, more exciting, something more flashy. We're we're taught, we're trained to crave um, recognition, to crave achievement, constant distraction and entertainment. I came across a... A quote from Oswald Chambers recently that speaks to this. He writes, "Uh, We do not need the grace of God to stand crises, by which he means to get through trouble. He says human nature and pride are sufficient, usually. But it does require the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours each day as a saint, to go through drudgery as a disciple. To live an ordinary, unobserved, ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus. He goes on, it's inbred in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we do not. We are called to be exceptional in the ordinary things, to be holy in lowly conditions among lowly, ordinary people. And this is perhaps part of the offense of the person and the call of Jesus to the people of Nazareth. And in all of this, like the Nazarites, maybe we, to the degree that we struggle with that as well, miss God's dressing in the ordinary. I had a convicting illustration of this years ago. My uh, missions professor in seminary uh, had been a missionary for uh, a good while in Eritrea, in Africa, as a um, completely Muslim nation, very hostile to Christianity. And he spoke of um, Christians risking their lives, and their, their livelihoods at least, and their families um, to gather for worship.
1: Each week they counted the
0: costs and yet they craved the ordinary means of grace week after week. Um, this professor the pastor eventually was first out of the country. And uh, recounted his disillusionment then at taking a pastorate again back in, in Pennsylvania after being in Eritrea and preaching to Americans for whom, by, by contrast, and in one sense by God's great blessing and grace, of course, it costs very little right, to go to worship each week come hear God's word preach, but who, uh, by comparison, their attitude was not illustrated by someone who were leaning forward in their chair and, and eagerly hearing what God had to say, soaking up the word of life, but illustrated better by someone sitting back with folded hands and saying, okay, fascinate me, make me listen. That's how he described the difference. Well, in verse 5, here Jesus essentially refuses to do miracles to serve these people of Nazareth. He refused to give them much blessing like he had other places. Uh, Luke again tells us a lot more about this this scene here. He records that, that Jesus accuses them of demanding a miracle to prove himself. Right, sitting back saying, Jesus, prove yourself. That We know you're just the ordinary Jesus from our neighborhood, so prove yourself. And Jesus refused. He gave the illustration of Elijah being sent, despite the fact there are many widows in Israel, he went only to the widow of Zarephath. And then Elisha, despite the fact there are many lepers in Israel, went only to and killed Naaman of Syria. Jesus' point was essentially even Syrian lepers would take part of, of what Jesus brings uh, if they believed but you're going to miss out demanding, demanding proof Jesus says essentially I'll, I'll take my gospel and blessings somewhere else to those who won't treat me as, as a familiar ordinary offense and maybe you remember what happened next in, in Luke's account here They they drove Jesus out of the synagogue and and tried to throw him over a cliff. What could it be that to the degree that we are familiarly indifferent to Jesus or fail to be amazed or sort of sitting back with folded arms waiting for Jesus to impress us or to bless us or to give us what we want, holding our contentment hostage until... To that degree that we're missing out, perhaps, on the blessing of Jesus.
1: If if your faith is
0: proportional to the ordinariness of your life, or a little congregation or the mundaneness of of your every day, rather than to the glory of Jesus, and praying to him in in earnestness and eager faith, perhaps he's withholding blessing, as he does here with the people of Nazareth. Jesus humble ordinary life was in fact showing people his glory. It wasn't the kind of glory they were looking for. He was rejected at home, rejected by his family. We've already read of some of that in an earlier chapter. And that's yet another way that Jesus identifies with your suffering. Perhaps brokenness of your family or a rejection, a rejection that you've experienced. The Jews may have wished for a more glorious kingdom in a different way, for prosperity and so on. You may wish for success or health or or big impressive ministry or something like that as, as examples, as confirmations of God's blessing. And you might be missing a display of God's glory and power and condescension and faithfulness through small things, ordinary things. You may think that you want something more, but in fact it's less than what God gives. Jesus wants to teach you patience and humility and dependence on his grace to prepare us for heaven. These are are priceless gifts. Just conclude with the challenge that maybe your family in some ways, maybe your heart in some ways, is, is one of Jesus' hometowns, so to speak. Too familiar with Jesus or with His word or with His worship to respond with amazement, and you' offended by the ordinariness of your life, the mundaneness, the weakness of your life or of others around you. Well maybe, may we be a congregation that, that judges Jesus by himself, by who He is and comes to him always with an amazed and grateful faith. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word here again this morning. We pray that you would, um, by your spirit, continue to help us to grow in our um, apprehension of your glory, to grow in awe and reverence uh, before you. To grow in our uh, astonishment, um, in in an astonishment of faith at your love and your condescension. We pray that you continue to reveal that to us week by week as we um, hear your word here together, as we study it and reflect on it at home. Um, Let that characterize us as, as a family of families here. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.